This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we learn about the pinyon juniper forests that are found throughout the Colorado Plateau. We explore how these systems have changed through time and how they are expected to change into the future. It's a good show. Stay with us. I enjoy this tribe, this, this, the science tribe. I, at some point when I was an undergrad, realized these are my people. And, and what I mean by that is that we all think in a really similar way. And that is oftentimes question driven. And so if you get in a group of scientists, you're like, isn't this cool? What do you think is causing this? Like, that's my tribe. Today on Science Moab, we are speaking with Dr. Nicole Barger from the University of Colorado Boulder about the extensive pinyon juniper forests found on the Colorado Plateau. These ecosystems are expanding into new areas where they have not been in human memory. At the same time, increased temperatures and reduced precipitation due to climate change are resulting in huge mortality events of pinions and some juniper trees. Here, Dr. Barger helps break down this dichotomy. We begin our interview with Dr. Barger explaining where these forests are found on the landscape and the different kinds of pinion juniper forests found around the Southwest. So pinion juniper woodlands are really interesting places to work and a vegetation type to work because it's spatially extensive. So it's the third largest vegetation type in the lower U.S. And um, it occurs in really broad types of soils and it occurs with a lot of different types of plants. So it's it's really interesting when we talk about pinyon juniper, there's no um, really good way to characterize it other than it's in it's a it's a semi-arid woodland that occurs across the Four Corners region um, up into the Great Basin re- region, and across ver- diverse soil types, diverse vegetation types, and when you look at these woodlands, they also have like really diverse structure and composition. And so, are they uh, do they become classified just like semantically? Okay with those different compositions or does they all just kind of always fall under the umbrella of woodland? Yeah, so it was a really great paper came out several years ago. This working group got together and they really tried to work on this idea that let's at least have some broad categories of pinion juniper. And so from this working group, there came out a, a few really well-recognized groups of pinyon juniper now. So we, we have pinyon juniper savanna systems, which are more um, down south with the summer monsoon, a stronger summer monsoonal rain. Snoring desert kind of area? Um, more the, um, as we get to southern Colorado Plateau okay. area. And then um, 
what we also see are persistent woodlands. So this is, er, these are areas that I, I tend to work in are dominated by pinyon juniper. There's not a lot of understory, for example, not a lot of perennial grass cover, not a, um, some shrub cover. And then in between that, there's also pinyon juniper shrubland where you can have a real mix of shrubs in the understory such as sagebrush. Um, so those are the three broad categories uh, um, to try to start characterizing these ecosystems. Um, and so there's a lot of talk about pinyon juniper woodlands. Some people have noticed that they're expanding in a different region. Also, people have noted that pinyon junipers are dying. You know, some of the, the species within the pinyon juniper combination are dying. They seem kind of dichotomous. So I was wondering if you could talk about the expansion and then also the mortality events that we're seeing within these woodlands. So what we've seen, and I've done this with a lot of my work over really the last hundred years now is what, like you said, an expansion of pinyon junipers. And that what that means is that expansion just means it's moving into an adjacent vegetation type. So what we oftentimes see is colonization, recruitment of pinyon juniper into sagebrush. And you can see these large sagebrush areas and then the, the whole landscape will be dotted with pinyon and juniper trees. And that's, that's what um, people mean by expansion. And some of my earlier work, um, really about 15 years ago now, I started asking the question, well, why? What's driving all of this? Is it climate? Is it, is it what we're seeing in changes in climate? Is it historical land use and the big land use on this area is grazing? Um, is it interactions with changes in fire regimes? And the only way to start decoupling that is to try to identify an ungrazed area that is not accessible, has been historically accessible to cattle versus a, great, a historically grazed area. And what we found when we did this, you know, one study in one location in, in Grand Staircase Escalante is that when we compared the recruitment of trees in both the grazed and ungrazed area. So what do you mean by recruitment? So what, um, what I mean is that um, we were using tree rings to date a lot of the um, pinions on the landscape and asking the question, when did they recruit or come you know, onto this landscape. And what was interesting in comparing these ungrazed and grazed um, research sites is that there were really no differences. Uh, and, and grazing didn't appear in that one particular site. And that's not always the case everywhere, but in that site, what appeared to be driving the, the, the structure of the pinions in that landscape were was past climate so it was really wet um, around the turn of the century and about a quarter of the trees that were there and still living there all recruited during that time period during that really wet time period and so that was a really interesting finding but again um, that was on one research site in southern utah on one particular soil type where grazing didn't have an effect. I've also looked at a lot of historical aerial photos in the Canyonlands region of grazed and ungrazed mesa tops. And what we've 
also seeing is that some real, really remote um, mesa tops like Lavender Mesa down by the Needles District, you can't get up there unless you, um, you climb and, and you have to make a significant effort to get on top of this mesa. Thus, cows can't get up there either. So we know that there have been no cows up there. And these open meadows and open areas of sagebrush and grasslands are still open. There has been no encroachment or expansion. Okay. And other areas that have been grazed have. So it's a, it's a pretty complicated story. And that's really the message that we've tried to get out is that it's, it's not simple. And that if you go to treat these landscapes and remove the trees that um, are expanding, um, you really need to look at um, the, the vegetation type and what's driving that. And so when you meant, when you talked about changes in fire regimes, what I would assume would be that fires would keep out new pinion or juniper trees because they're maybe not adapted. So like young seedlings, a fire would come through a grassland, take out the young seedlings so they don't grow up. And then when there is no fire, then they have room to grow. Is that my understanding? Yes. So if you have a grassland that is not burning as frequently and those trees are able to get a toehold in there, then then you'll have those um, with the change in, in the fire frequency. Can you counter that with a lot of these reports about pinion junipers also dying in large numbers around the southwest? Yeah, so right around 2003 is when we started seeing massive death of pinion in particular, which was driven by a combination of drought and the Ips beetle. And so what's interesting is that in a lot of these areas where you could get both expansion and infilling, which infilling just means that you have a pinion juniper woodland that is filling in all the spaces with more trees. Okay. And what we saw in some areas is up to 90% mortality, mostly of pinion pines. And what we know from this is that that, so the Ips beetle, uh, it's, it's a native pest, and it, it had a pretty dramatic pat, impact on the structure of a lot of pinion juniper woodlands, in, especially in um, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona, and also the um, south, southwest corner of Colorado. So the whole Fort Corners region was seeing this. And so you can kind of think about this as a natural resetting event. What's interesting and what we don't know is going forward from here. So under a previous climate where we weren't um, under higher temperatures and changes in precipitation, we would just expect a, a lot of these woodlands to reset themselves. But under a new climate, what we don't know is whether or not we will still see recovery of these trees and and what we know from the again the past climate is that we need a lot of really cool wet years for these trees to recruit and if we're not seeing all these cool wet years then the question is whether or not we they they will be able to establish again what is replacing them in these areas where we're seeing lots of mortality I i don't think we really know at this point because it's these are species that don't produce seed every year. So we really need probably two decades to, to yeah. answer that question 
to to definitively say wow we're really not seeing the trees coming back in this landscape because you have to have um, the opportunity to have a, a few cool wet years so I think the question is, we, we don't know what will be if they're not able to get in the landscape what will be there but it's likely that we would go to a more shrub and grass dominated system how are the beetles actually killing these pinions? The way that a lot of these um, pine beetles work is that as trees are undergoing stress, they are not able to defend themselves as well, and they're more susceptible to beetle attack. So for example, if a, a, a beetle starts boring into a tree, oftentimes a tree can defend itself by producing a lot of sap and pushing it back out. So a, a tree that is experiencing a lot of drought stress would not be able to produce as much, thus it would be more susceptible to um, attack. Is it expected that in most dry years you would see a large attack like this, or are the beetles also some kind of cyclical life cycle? That's a, that is a really great, great question. and. So if you have a stand that has experienced 90% mortality, it's likely that that 10% that is remaining, it's likely not enough of a resource for the, the bark beetles at, at that low level that's remaining in that stand. But what, what you often see is that um, a movement of the beetles from one area to another. Since I'm not an entomologist, I'm getting a little bit out of my area of expertise, but this is just based on personal observation. So as some of these forests are expanding, how are they changing the ecosystem other than just like the obvious vegetational changes, but uh, what kinds of uh, maybe larger impacts are they having in, in transitioning a whole ecotype to something else? What's interesting is that from a human and social and agricultural perspective, movement of pinion juniper has always been viewed as a bad thing. And the reason for this is that as, as these trees move into what we would consider prime agricultural landscapes, such as sagebrush for wildlife, um, grasslands for livestock, the idea is that you get declines in forage for the, those different users. It, it's been at least a half a century now of treating what we call treatment, which is just removal in a variety of ways of pinion and juniper, juniper trees from these landscapes. So I think there are huge social decisions that have been made from an agricultural perspective that has really in, influenced um, pinion juniper um, ecosystems. The other thing that has occurred more recently is removal and thinning of pinion juniper trees for fuels reduction and fire mitigation under the um, Healthy Forest Restoration Act, and and that's been over more of the last 15 years. So I would have to say that there the expansion and infilling has change pinion juniper woodlands, but we as humans have really altered these landscapes by 
our decisions over the last half century to remove these trees or to mulch them. You know, we, we've done a variety of things over the, the last century that has really altered the landscape in a way to try to promote species such as shrubs and grasses for both livestock and wildlife. Can you outline some of the ways in which we remove them? Yes. So we have recently done a collaboration and a study looking at one is called, um, we call it the bull hog. So this is just a way, this is a big mulching machine that uh, that is attached to a tract, some sort of tract vehicle, and can just move around the landscape, you know, start from the top of a pinion or juniper tree and just eat it and, and, and mulch all of that wood, which then goes onto the landscape. So that's a pretty common way to treat these landscapes. When pinion juniper trees were just first starting to be removed, the first um, type of re removal of trees was called chaining. And I, from my early memories of reading Edward Abbey books, they, he talked about chaining of landscapes. And so what that means is that, again, you have two tracked vehicles with a large chain attached in between them and dragged across the landscape to uproot the trees and, and pull them out. Um, so this, although this practice is still done, it has fallen out of favor because we are working on these rich cultural landscapes. And you can imagine that that level of soil disturbance can really have an impact on all the cultural artifacts in these landscapes. So um, those are just two kind of mechanical types of treatment. There's also the use of fire. So um, having crews of people go in and cut down all of the trees and drop them to the landscape, letting them dry and then um, burning them after um, several months. So th those are probably the main types of pinion juniper treatments that are, are done across in this area. Do you know what causes the pinion seeds, the pinion nuts to, like what is the controlling the frequency with which pinions produce seed? This is a really interesting story. So it takes a long, it takes a lot for, from seed to seedling to have a pinion juniper seedling. And, it, and, and the, the time range is around two years. So these are pinions and a lot of pines in general are what we call masting species. And what that means is that they only produce seed um, for, for pinion in this region is probably in the range of six to seven years. And that's why you see the, the local knowledge about pinion masting is, is pretty amazing because there are people that go around and collect pinion seeds and they need to know you know, what populations are producing seed in what area and the, the local knowledge of that is, is pretty amazing. And we've tried to harness some of that local knowledge and, and, and knowing what pinion populations are producing seed in any year. But so let's say you have an opportunity that a pinion population produces seeds every six to seven years and what triggers that and what we found that has triggered that through a series and it's just not my research group but um, other researchers is that having low temperatures in August of a given year is a, a, a trigger of, um, seed, of seed production or cone production. 
and that will get the ball rolling. That'll that'll start the whole cycle. So we we have this really interesting paper that was written by one of my graduate students, and a lot of this work was out of a previous area that had that um, someone had done research in New Mexico, saying, well, okay, if we need cool temperatures in August for this to happen, and we're going into a warmer world, what's happening? So what she did is compared the study that was done in the 1970s by a researcher in New Mexico and went back in um, 2010 and 11 to say, okay, what's the evidence that are, are we seeing now that it's warmer from the 1970s, is there a decline in cone production? And so as predicted and hypothesized, if you need warmer temperatures or cooler temperatures for cone productions, and we, we weren't getting that, that what we actually did see is a decline in cone production. So once you start the cones um, that have been produced, they need to be then pollinated. And so this, this is like a two year cycle. And once those seeds drop, they don't last very long. So they also need cool, wet p conditions to then germinate and, and then get established. If it's hot and dry, they're just all gonna die. So what we know is that really to get a really good event and to set up all those conditions is probably once every few decades to get wow. a really good event like that. And as we go into a hotter, drier world, it's just unclear that we're going to have the conditions set up for these trees. Has anybody taken all of these different factors and modeled them to, to, to have predictions about what kind of cover we might see of these trees in the future? Yeah, that, that's a really great question of like, can we start forecasting what's going to happen? So we, there are models out there that are climate envelope models. And that all that just asks is that, what's the climate that these trees occur in now? And how do we predict the climate is going to change in the future? And do we even have habitat for um, these trees in the future? So that's the really rough way to do it. And the amazing way that that really hasn't been done yet is to really be able to model cradle to grave um, climate change in addition to all the conditions that we would need for germination establishment and then to grow and then to make it to an adult stage um, that to my knowledge has not really been done yet i'm interested in what got you interested in the research that you do So my current research is really, so I started as a student wanting to save tropical rainforests. And I went to the tropics and I worked in Costa Rica and some of my first projects were with ants in Costa Rica and working um, in these very incredible rainforests but with these horrible um, poisonous snakes around and stinging ants and so what you realize in starting off in science or what I realized starting off in science is that I have affinity to some ecosystems and not others so I just have so I am in so much awe of tropical rainforests but I did not see myself spending my life working there and some people do they just it, it, some people do and so it wasn't until 
Um, so after that job, my first job in tropical forests, I ended up getting a job in Hawaii, which was the dream job as an undergrad. Go spend the summer doing research in Hawaii. And, but I ended up on the dry side of Hawaii. And it was, it was like the perfect place for me. It was warm, but it was really, and not a lot of, not a lot of people know about these very arid environments uh, on the Hawaiian islands. And it was the, the dry side and it was um, very desert-like conditions. And really from there, I realized I just, I, I worked there for the summer and I was like, this is, these are my places, these kind of dry grassland sort of ecosystems. And, and then, you know, so many times when I talk to students and graduate students, we, there's this thought that careers are linear. And my message has always been that they are always nonlinear. Show me someone that has like stepped through, know exactly what they wanted to do from undergrad to graduate school to their whatever position they're in. And, and that's how life has been for me too, that I went for, to Hawaii and then got this opportunity to work in South American grasslands. And it's been all these mentors and people that have taken me places that, and, and taken me places geographically, but taking me to questions scientifically that it wasn't about me and my interest. It's just that it was their enthusiasm that I was drawn to. And that's how I ended up working on, for example, biological soil crusts in Moab is that I met Jane Belknap in China and spent two weeks with her. And suddenly with her enthusiasm of this, who, and then she became my mentor and advisor, drew me in. What do you enjoy about being a scientist? The, I enjoy this tribe, this, this, the science tribe. I, at some point when I was an undergrad, realized these are my people. And, the, and what I mean by that is that we all think in a really similar way. And that is oftentimes question driven. And so if you get a, in a group of scientists, you're like, isn't this cool? What do you think is causing this? Like, that's my tribe. And so like having, being out with those people and asking questions, like that's, that's the number one thing for me is that I just love working with students and working with colleagues that think in that way. And I feel really comfortable there because, you know, I grew up in a really rural area of the Midwest. And I have to say that my love of reading and questions I, I didn't always have a tribe. And so to find that in a group of people that were always willing to question everything and that there are no assumptions of how the world works is has been incredibly wonderful. And then to match that with being able to be outside looking at patterns in nature and trying to take this kind of question-driven mind and apply it to some of our um, most pressing environmental problems. You can listen to this interview with Dr. Nicole Barger again at kzmu.org or download it on iTunes or Stitcher. Theme music for our show is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.